Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It is Monday, April 26, 2010, and we're sure glad you're here with us. Uh, Dr. Robert Epstein is our guest, the author of Teen 2.0. Welcome, Dr. Epstein. So this was really fun for me to get to know you through the book, in part because I discovered that I actually knew you. Um, I own Games Trainers Play, um, and I read with fascination the Love article that was in the January edition of Scientific American Brain. Uh, you're pretty prolific. How do you do it all? I uh, I feel honestly exactly the opposite. <laughs> I feel I feel like I I have a thousand things I want to do, and I you know there's so few that I actually am able to act upon. So, but I appreciate your your compliment very much. So if there's somebody in the chat there who would who would pull up Dr. Epstein's um, website and put the link into the chat, if you really want some fun to see how much one individual can accomplish, uh, just give his website a look. There we go. Uh, it's pretty amazing. Um, I will also say that um, I feel I feel pretty prepared uh, mentally for this this leap that you're going to take us on. Uh, in part because my first interview series was with people who had been significant in the open source software movement. And they very much had participated uh, at young ages and outside of traditional boundaries. Have, have you heard that connection before as well? Uh, yes, I've, I, yes, I have, as a matter of fact. I've heard all kinds of connections. But, but I'm surprised to hear you say you're prepared for this because uh, generally speaking, uh, you know what I'm saying runs very, very directly counter to mainstream views about teens. Well, I think I'm prepared in part because of the open source software interview series, and in part because we have homeschooled. We have four children, and we've homeschooled off and on at different times with different children. And I think your message probably resonates pretty well yeah. with homeschoolers. Absolutely. Uh, the homeschool community has been very, very supportive. And of course, it is a, uh, a growing group. Uh, still a small minority, but it's a growing minority for sure. So we have a son who's 19 who uh, probably fit very much into the category of our thinking, you know, this is a brain issue. This is kind of classic teenage behavior, who went off for for four months to school and to work independently and came back just so much happier. And I think your own son is, is in part the impetus for the, some of the research you've done. Did you want to tell that story at all? Well, sure. Uh, I actually have six children. Um, and my, uh, my eldest son is 30 now. And he's still, he's still growing up. He's still working on it. It might be his whole life. But I noticed when his younger brother, uh, Justin, was about, let's say, 14 or 15, he was incredibly mature. And, you know, they're all different. That's the thing. And we, we tend to forget that sometimes, especially the lawmakers tend to forget that. And I noticed that Justin was very mature. He balanced work and play uh, very well. I see Bruce is saying, I'm 50 and still growing up, by the way. And, uh, but Justin was amazing. I mean, he was. He was doing business things, you know, at 14 or 15, and uh, he was more mature, obviously, than his older brother, and in some ways more mature than than I was. And I recognized that, and I got very curious. I wondered, for example, why he had to go to high school, which was pretty much a waste of time for him. I wondered why he wasn't allowed to drive legally. I, I learned that he had been stealing my truck. Uh, repeatedly, and I, 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 you know, I brought the, the roof down on him, and I even brought him into the police station. But you know, inside, I was saying, now wait a minute, he obviously can drive. He's never had a ticket. He's never gotten in an accident. Why is he not allowed to drive, even though he's obviously competent to drive? And so he really was the the, the, the impetus for the research I started on on young people. And it's been a long journey, and my own views on uh, young people and teens have, have changed completely. It's been a very, very difficult journey for me because I basically, basically believed all of the things that people believe in our culture, which is, you know, 
uh, young people under a certain age, whether it's 26 or 21 or 18 or something, are supposed to be inherently uh, incompetent and irresponsible. They're supposed to be in turmoil. Uh, you know, adolescence is supposed to be an inevitable stage of life that, that people have always gone through and always will go through uh, everywhere in the world. I mean, I, I always believed those things. And, of course, I'm a psychologist, so I actually had formal training informing me about such things. And so this has been a very difficult journey because I was socialized as a dad in our culture, and I was socialized as a psychologist in my own profession to believe things which, in fact, are completely, totally false. There's not even a shred of truth in any of those beliefs I just uh, just ticked off for you, uh, that, that teens are inherently irresponsible and incompetent, that adolescence is a necessary stage of life, it's a stage of turmoil, uh, there's something wrong with the brain or it's underdeveloped, there's something wrong with the hormones. All of those beliefs widely held in our society are completely, totally false. There's not even a shred of truth in those beliefs. And that's why this has been very hard for me, because uh, I'm obviously, uh, and not only have, have, did I have to challenge my own thinking, but basically I've had to challenge the thinking of my own colleagues. And it's been very, very, very rough for me. So everything I read from you this weekend told me that you're highly transparent in your, in your description of your own journeys everything from the love contract and your writings on love to going through these experiences in Team 2.0. But this is no small book. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to get the page count, but it, you know, with the index, it's over 530 pages. And, and this is a highly scientific or, or documented or comprehensive work. Uh, how long did it take you to compile all this information? Well, it's taken, um, you know, altogether maybe 12 years, but uh, also it involves original research I did with a doctoral student, uh, Dr. Diane Dumas, and then other original research I've done uh, since working with Diane. So it's been, it's been a very long process. Uh, there is a lot of science in the book, and there's a lot of, uh, uh, there's actually, uh, I think, 100 pages just of endnotes because uh, yes, there's there's references here to hundreds and hundreds of studies, uh, and then and not just studies done here, but I think more important to studies done in other countries around the world, and then to historical research and research from anthropology. Uh, so, you know, the, as I say, it's been a, a long journey because, in part, because I I really. You know, I, I had to dig very, very hard to get to the truth. It took a lot of digging. It took a lot of research, a lot of work. Uh, and I didn't trust, you know, the reason the book is so fat is because, I mean, it's like a phone book. And, uh, but the reason why there's so much in it and so much detail and so much fact and so much science is because I really felt I had to do this right. Uh, you know, I couldn't just dash off something uh, you know, a kind of here's a new parenting guide or something. I had to do this right because, uh, again, I'm, I'm challenging widely held beliefs, beliefs not just held by millions of people in America, but are beliefs that are promoted every single day by government agencies, by nonprofit organizations, beliefs that are um, promoted by the music industry, the fashion industry, uh, beliefs that are promoted by you know, major institutions of the criminal justice system, the juvenile justice system. So I'm, I'm challenging so much that, uh, again, I really just felt, uh, you know, I had to do it right. I, you could call it um, uh, obsessive behavior. Maybe it's my obsessive compulsive uh, tendencies. Or, or just, uh, again, it's really, you know, it's this feeling I, I, I couldn't, go halfway on this. I had to go all the way. And that's why this, this particular book is so big. Now, on, on, on the bright side, uh, I am working now on a sequel, which, is, which will be very short, which will be much shorter. And, and there's actually a, a segment of this book uh, 
which is in the back, it's an essay called Finding the Inner Adult in Your Teen. And uh, we, we actually were almost done making an, an e-book version of that essay, Finding the Inner Adult in Your Teen, which is a parenting guide. And, um, and, and that will be probably my next book on teens, and that will be much shorter, and that will just be a parenting guide. But this book is, you know, it's the big one. It's, it's, got, it's got all the detail and everything from, again, uh, you know, other cultures around the world and, 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 and about our own history and the history of other cultures. And, you know, to really say positively, without any doubt, uh, that the, the, tr the problems we have with teens in our country are entirely a creation of our culture and are entirely unnecessary, that all of the pain uh, that we go through with our teens is entirely unnecessary. So I, I really did like that appendix. It's Appendix 7, and it's the start of your, your book, uh, The Parenting Bit. And, and that was a very encouraging way for me to kind of finish the book. But let's go back, and would you mind kind of rehearsing just sort of the general outline for those who maybe aren't familiar with the work or are asking right now, you know, how could this be true? What has brought us to this point? Well, that's a, it's a somewhat of a long story, uh, which I tell in Chapter 2, which is somewhat of a long chapter. It's the longest chapter in the book. Uh, but I'll give you kind of a, a thumbnail, if I can. Uh, you know, through most of human history, uh, there was no such thing as adolescence. That is for sure. And, um, and and young people, and this is still true in more than 100 cultures around the world, young people uh, simply, you know, were, were kind of welcomed into uh, the adult world, um, mainly to work side by side with adults or to get married. But they were welcomed into the adult world at relatively young ages based on their individual competence. So if you go back into the 1800s, for example, uh, you will find that uh, David Farragut, who was, you know, admiral of of the Navy for the during the Civil War for the for the North, uh, David Farragut uh, had his his first. Uh, well, he entered the Navy at age nine, basically, and had his first command at least briefly when he was age twelve. Or uh, take uh, I don't know the Colt. The Colt pistol was invented by Samuel Colt when Colt was 16 years old. Or take uh, Braille, you know, the Braille writing. Braille was, was invented by Louis Braille when he was, I think, 12 or 13. He perfected it when he was 15. Uh, so you, you go back in history, you find that young people, they're, they're doing adult things, they're working side by side with adults, and there's no adolescence, and there's no turmoil, and there's no conflict with parents or, or the older generation because, uh, in fact, they, they're welcomed into, they're welcomed into the adult world uh, early on based on individual competence. Uh, I mean, I interviewed the uh, former President Jimmy Carter about his childhood in Georgia, and uh, sure enough, Carter was out there at age five on his own with his hunting dog with a rifle hunting by age five. Uh, you know, he was certainly driving tractors around by, you know, age 12 or 13 as soon as he could reach the pedals. So something changed. And how did this change and when did it change? And I, and I, and I, I explain this uh, in, in almost excruciating detail in the book. But basically, um, uh, there, starting after the Civil War, since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution in the United States, uh, things started to happen. There were big things. Uh, we got overwhelmed by immigrants. We had hundreds of thousands of young people on the streets, people of all ages, but, in, but including hundreds of thousands of young people in the big cities. Um, and there were enormous challenges faced by the Industrial Revolution. The uh, Basically, factories were proliferating very quickly. And uh, also, the which, and, and that ended the apprentice system, which had been operating uh, probably for a thousand years or maybe maybe forever. As long as we've had civilization, there's been a kind of an apprentice system. The apprentice system was destroyed by the new factories. And there were challenges faced by 
uh, our leaders, and this was true in varying degrees in some countries in Europe as well, wherever the Industrial Revolution hit, there were major challenges. And as a result, uh, three systems came into being. And these systems created adolescence. Uh, one was a system of, of compulsory mass education, which was modeled, by the way, after the new factories. It's actually a factory model. And people who were coming up with the, the plan for, for mass education, compulsory mass education, they, they were very explicit about this. They were setting up a kind of an assembly line for young people, segregating by ages, treating them all the same as if they're all the same, which they're not. Uh, but they had to do something. So that was the first system. And of course, that began to isolate young people from adults and to trap them with each other. For the first time ever in human history, young people were isolated from adults and trapped with each other. And of course, the age for compulsory attendance increased over the years. So basically, we were isolating more and more young people from adults, trapping more and more young people with peers which is ridiculous. So a uh, second system was the juvenile justice system. Uh, basically, this, uh, this, they were very well-meaning people. They were all women, and they were very well-meaning people. And they, were, they, they thought they had this idea that they could sweep young people off the streets in the major cities and rescue them from a life of crime and corruption uh, by putting them into special facilities that would be uh, run by nurturing women, and they could nurture them back into a moral life. And that was the idea behind the juvenile justice system. And so th it spread like wildfire because, they, they, again, the, the authorities needed ways to get young people off the streets. Um, and uh, and, and it, it completely failed. It turned into a kind of a low-budget uh, prison system, and it, it, which it still is to this day. So that was the second system. And then the third system is, was a system uh, restricting work, the so-called child labor laws. Uh, basically, uh, for the first time in, ever in human history, young people not allowed uh, to work side by side with their parents and other adults, not allowed uh, to do any kind of work except farm work if they happen to live on a farm. And, um, and that's what happened. Those three systems came into place. The systems were actually put in place by the same people, believe it or not, it's exactly the same people put all three systems in place at about the same time. And that's what happened. And those three systems together ended up doing two things, which are still being done today. Number one, isolating young people from responsible adults, from their parents, uh, from other people, other responsible adults, and trapping them with peers. And the second thing it did was to infantilize young people well past the age of puberty. In other words, we started treating young people um, like children, even though they were no longer children, and basically artificially extended uh, the age, uh, uh, artificially extended childhood to older and older ages. And uh, uh, childhood used to end when puberty began, and now in this country, probably doesn't end until age 26 on the average, according to recent surveys. And, I, and that's what my book says. And I thought it was amazing when, under Obama's new health care plan, uh, they extended the age of, uh, through which young people would be covered under parents' uh, insurance policies to age 26. That turns out is the magical number right now uh, for when adulthood finally begins. Uh, on the average uh, in the United States. So we're basically uh, taking childhood, which is supposed to end around age 12 or 13, and we're adding on to it another, another 12 or 13 years. And during those years, the young people are restricted in many ways. And among other kinds of research I've done, I've done survey research showing uh, that our teens, at least up through age 18, are, are subjected to 10 times as many restrictions as mainstream adults, uh, and to roughly twice as many restrictions uh, as uh, active duty US Marines and incarcerated felons. So those are the three systems that were put in place. Uh, the net impact of those systems, again, are those two, uh, two factors that are critical and that have created adolescence. 
one being isolation from adults, of course, which means you're trapped with peers, and the other being that uh, you're infantilized, you're treated like children long after you're no longer uh, a child. So there have and I'm going to I'm going to stop there for a second because you can, because uh, I could continue <laughs> easily through the end of the hour, but uh, uh, believe me, without any trouble at all, but I thought you, you might want to steer me in one direction or another. Okay, I really appreciate your kind of going through that, and if you're interested, there's just such depth in the book, and I think you've done a very good job of documenting so much as to help those of us who've struggled with this read it and, and gain appreciation and, and more and more perspective as we go through more and more examples. I'm personally kind of intrigued by the role that technology seems to have played lately. Uh, one being the awareness of child safety issues. You know, if a child is kidnapped in Florida, those of us in California are intimately aware of it. And at the same time, the ability for parents to continue to have daily, sometimes hourly contact with their children in college. Have you seen that the technology has, has sort of facilitated this additionally? Oh, yes. In fact, I have a, a section on this in Chapter 5, and then I have now an appendix in the book, which uh, it just goes on and on and on, listing uh, the, the kinds of uh, restrictions that are put on young people and the kinds of control that we're exerting more and more and more. And technology is has very suddenly appeared on the scene and accelerated this process so that there are now dozens and dozens and dozens of products and services all making use of high tech uh, that parents and other authority figures are using uh, to monitor young people and especially teenagers uh, 24 hours a day. Here in San Diego, uh, we manufacture something called the drive cam, which is uh, which parents install in a teenager's car. This is how it's marketed, and the drive cam automatically uh, uploads to the internet sounds, uh, that is voices and so on, and images to the internet, so the parent can see and hear what's happening in the teenager's car. Uh, there's something called uh, the oh I forgot what it's called something stick forgetting exactly what it's called now. It's, you, you plug it into your, your snoop stick. It's called the snoop stick. You plug it into your teen's computer, and then from that point on, uh, it, it installs some stealth software. From that point on, you can monitor what your teen is doing on his or her computer from any other internet-connected computer. And so there, there are now uh, many, many products. Of course, there's home drug testing and so on. So the, the technology is taking uh, the, the mistake that we've been making for a long time and it's making it much worse. Uh, and, and you know, things are the restrictions are actually uh, proliferating much faster than they had in the past. I have a graph in uh, chapter two. That, that shows the trend in restrictions that are being put on young people uh, and it's been over the last 200 years. And it shows basically virtually no restrictions at all. Uh, and then this, after the Civil War, that the, the, the restrictions starting to increase. And then starting with the 1960s, the rate of increase in, increasing dramatically. And, and basically the slope now is extremely high. So we're actually moving rapidly in the wrong direction. And there is uh, very good data uh, from uh, Gene Twenge and uh, some other people showing that over the last 25 years, uh, in fact, uh, young people, teens, have, have said that they have less and less and less and less control over their lives. There's also a, a, a massive amount of clinical evidence suggesting that that lack of control they have over their lives is, is the main reason why so many of them uh, are depressed or suicidal or angry, why they commit crimes and so on. So uh, putting these restrictions on and now with high tech, you know, putting them on faster and, and basically uh, tightening the grip on young people uh, is, is having a devastating effect on them. It's a kind of a vicious circle where uh, young people are either acting out or getting angry or committing crimes or they're depressed. And, and we respond uh, 
we respond to that with restrictions and controls and medication. And in turn, they act out more or they get more depressed, and we respond with more restrictions and more medication and more controls. So that's, uh, that's been the trend for quite some time. Is there a psychological term for that cycle? I, mean, I, I know that my wife and I discovered this somewhat early on, that we, uh, we often got the very result we were trying to protect ourselves from when we were parenting. Is there a word for that or a phrase? Right. Yeah. Well, there's the self-fulfilling prophecy. I mean, I don't know. There's there's different kinds of phenomena. I actually, in uh, chapter, uh, uh, I think it's 14 of the book, I actually go through a number of different, uh, some lingo, some jargon, you know, and I, I go through some num a number of psychological processes which help explain why we're making <laughs> the errors that we're making. And, uh, uh, you know, basically, uh, you know, just, just, just highlight the nature of the dilemma and make it, and they, they explain in, in effect why I personally have had such a difficult journey here. And by the way, I, I'm a completely different kind of parent now than I was years ago with my, with my with my older uh, offspring. I'm a completely different parent than I am uh, than than I used to be. In other words, with my younger children, who range in age from four to eleven, I'm just a different. Parent. And it's because of, it's not because I'm older and wiser, it's because I've actually been on this journey and I understand that young people have enormous capabilities. They are not inherently irresponsible and incompetent. Uh, they do not have defective brains. And in fact, they're, by the time they're 13, 14, 15, uh, their, their brains have extraordinary capabilities. They're actually cognitively at the peak of their abilities. Uh, and, you know, we reach our peak of cognitive capability between ages 13 and 15, and we might stay at the peak, you know, for a few years, but it, uh, eventually we start to deteriorate. By the time we're in our 20s or 30s, we, are de we deteriorate for the rest of our lives. So I look at my own offspring now completely differently, and I parent completely differently, and I love it. This is much better. It's much better doing it this way. So I don't think you're saying that all teens are all at the same stage. I think you're very careful not to say that. But I do think you say pretty clearly that we're misinterpreting the, the brain research. Would you talk about that for a minute? Well, that, don't get me started on the brain stuff because, uh, believe me, that, that, one, that one really irks me because I am a scientist. I've, I mean, I've published scientific articles in some of the top uh, scientific journals in the world. And, you know, I've taught uh, research methods at the doctoral level, and so this is an area that really, really irks me because uh, the the what we what we've seen uh, promoted by the drug companies, we have seen uh, you know headlines spreading the belief over the last really only five to ten years that uh, you know our teens are in turmoil because there's something wrong with their brains. Their brains are underdeveloped, and this is such nonsense. Uh, you know, it's exactly like what happened in the early 1900s when we had a branch of psychology called racial psychology. There were all kinds of biases and faulty beliefs about blacks, and some, some early racial psychologists were pointing to properties of their brains or properties of their skulls that explained, quote, unquote, why they were uh, you know, why they lacked intelligence or, or you know, whatever. They, they just, they, they used physical characteristics to justify their biases. And that's exactly what's happened now uh, with this brain research. There is no scientific evidence that any property of a teen's brain is responsible for the turmoil that teens experience in our country. There's no scientific evidence whatsoever. It's all correlational research. There's no research showing a causal link between properties of a teen's brain and, uh, and, and their turmoil or their risk-taking. There's n nothing. There's not even a shred of such evidence. So but what's happening now is some people are making their careers uh, by, by tying, you know, studies, you know, MRI studies showing some properties of a teen's brain, and they, and they tie that in uh, causally 
with the fact that our teens are a mess in this country, pretty much, and they say, aha, you see, it's because of their brains. And, and what that does is it serves the drug companies because the drug companies want the public to believe that, so that we'll put all of our young people on medication. And the scheme has worked quite well because as of roughly 2004, 2005, we passed a threshold that should make us ashamed. Uh, basically, as of that point, and, if, and, and we've gone past that point today, we are now prescribing more psychoactive drugs for our teens than all other prescription drugs combined, and that includes antibiotics and, and acne medication. That's how bad this trend is. So, uh, you know, how do we know this is, this is false? Well, we know this is false because in more than 100 cultures around the world, there is no adolescence. There's no teen turmoil. There's no, there's no turmoil during the teen years. There's no conflict with parents. There is um, no teen depression. There is no teen suicide. None. So, it, you know, if, if the turmoil of our teens were due to uh, an underdeveloped or defective brain, you would see it in every culture on Earth. You most certainly do not see it. You only see it in cultures that infantilize teens and that isolate them from adults. This, in other words, the problems of our teens are a creation of our culture. They have nothing to do with properties of their brain. And, uh, and I think that, the, that the, the handful of scientists who are making their careers uh, by making you know, through these claims, uh, I think they should be fired from their positions. I think their funding should be taken away. I think it's outrageous. It's poor science. So I've been watching a an online, it's a free online documentary called The Corporation, and I don't know if anybody else has seen this, but it's pretty stunning and it it's stunningly interesting. And you've mentioned now the drug companies, and you've mentioned the technology companies that are potentially catering to the fears. What has been the role of, of business here? And how has, how has the business community uh, played a role in our perception of teens? You know, I, I handle that in two different chapters. And it's, it's, they've played a big role, to answer your question. They've played a huge role in the artificial extension of childhood. Uh, and in the creation of teen culture and the maintenance of teen culture and in basically hitting us over the head every day over and over and over again with these stereotypes, uh, the stereotype of, you know, the, the immature, irresponsible, uh, you know, drug-using, partying teen. I mean, that's, that's the only image of teens that we see, and we see it thousands and thousands of times every year. It's just... It's, it's repeated to us through certain kinds of music and through, uh, through movies and through television shows, and, and it just gets repeated over and over, even though, again, that, that image is false. It's a false image. Uh, it, it, we, it doesn't tell us anything about the capabilities of our young or how young people are in other cultures. It just tells us about a stereotype, uh, a kind of a... Um, kind of mannequin a team that we that our culture has created. And you know, if you do that, if you if you if you create this image and you repeat you repeat the, the myth over and over again, uh, you not only spread the belief, but you also have an impact on young people because they they actually start behaving downward uh, to meet to meet the characteristics of that image. They they imitate their peers their peers imitate the role models which are presented by industry of people like Miley Cyrus and Vanessa Hudgens and Zac Efron, and I could go on and on because I have lots of children, so I know the names. And, uh, you know, they, 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 and so they end up living down to, not up to, but living down to, um, you know, the stereotype that's, that is created and maintained by various kinds of industries. And, uh, you know, and there's precedent here because uh, in countries around the world where, where women are still treated like property, uh, you know, they often act like they are property. And that was true in our own culture, too, for hundreds or maybe thousands of years. 
And it's very hard to break that kind of pattern if, if a culture is telling you, you are defective, you are fragile, you belong in the home, you cannot do mathematics, and so on, because you're a woman. Uh, you are a coward, you cannot fight because you're a woman. Then guess what? A lot of women uh, buy into that, and they may hate it. They might feel some resistance. They might get very depressed. They might get angry. But it does have an impact, and that's what we're doing to our teens. Okay, we are we are hitting them over the head with these stereotypes uh, that are maintained by big businesses, and unfortunately, a lot of teens uh, lower themselves to meet the low standard. So this is a good time to move to Q&A. While you're preparing questions for Dr. Epstein, uh, which you can put in the chat or you can uh, raise your hand to ask, look for the hand with the green up arrow, I'm going to ask one final question that keeps coming up in the chat, which is really encompassed in your Appendix 7. But people want to know what can they do? How can they help teens to integrate more fully into the adult world? Yes, well, the essay that I have in this book is called Finding, Finding the Inner Adult in Your Teen Addresses That. And, you know, we, we, we've been talking for a long time in our culture about finding our inner child, you know, so that we can still be playful as adults and still be creative, which I think is great. But I think when it comes to our teens, we have to do something else. We have to release their inner adult. And believe me, it is in there. Uh, my own data, by the way, uh, with a, a new study with more than 30,000 people, uh, suggests that 30% of our teens under 18 are actually more competent than the median adults in our society across a very wide range of abilities. In other words, they're more competent than half of our adults. But how, how do we release that? How do we, how do we find the inner adult in our teen? Well, there are things we can do as parents uh, that are that are kind of uh, limited in scope because we're all operating within a system, within a larger system, which infantilizes our young and which isolates them from adults. So what can we do? Well, again, there are limited things we can do. Homeschooling, uh, if you can do it, if you have the resources, is a superb way uh, to remove young people from uh, uh, at least to some extent, from the, the world of their peers, which is an idiotic world for them to be in. Young people during the teen years uh, should be learning uh, not hip-hop lyrics. They should be learning to become adults. That's what the teen years are for. That's what they've been for all through human history. That's what they're still for in many cultures. So if you start to look at your offspring that way, notice I'm not saying children because they are definitely not children past puberty. If you start to look at your offspring past puberty as young, competent adults, then you have to, as a parent, uh, find ways to integrate them into adult culture. Now, I'm doing this now with my 9-year-old and my 11-year-old, and they love it. And that's the thing. If you actually start to focus on the competence of your sons and your daughters, on competence, competence, not incompetence, and you start to develop that confidence, and you start to welcome them into your world, they love it. They, they're the first ones. If you give them a chance to escape from, from the world of peers and the world of the idiotic world of teen culture, they're the first ones to jump at it. So, I mean, there are times uh, and where, in, where I wake up, I'll get out of bed, and my nine-year-old has already made scrambled eggs for the other kids, and it's cleaned up and has washed the dishes. And my 11-year-old my has helped me do audio editing for my radio show and other kinds of things. I mean, I'm, I'm always looking for ways to bring them forward into the adult world. So that's what this essay, um, Finding the Inner Adult in, in Your Teen, is all about. It's 14 different uh, strategies for doing this. Uh, however, I should point out that although I'm proposing all these strategies and I'm using some of them myself, that uh, you know there are limits on what you can do because our culture is 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 so completely off base when it comes to teens, and the belief systems are so completely off base, so completely inaccurate, and and the and the power and influence of major major 
forces in society, big businesses, government agencies, it is so huge uh, that, you know, to some extent you're swimming upstream. And so, uh, you know, in, in the new book I'm writing, I'm, you know, talking a lot about this issue and that what we have to do as caring, as loving parents to begin to change these systems. So there are things you can do within your own home, and then on a larger scale, there are things we have to do over time to change these systems that were put in place 100 years ago, uh, you know, when they were needed because of, because of turmoil created by the Industrial Revolution. And now we've got to get rid of these systems. We have to, uh, it's, not, it's not a matter of going back to agrarian times, but it's going back to the traditional relationship between young people and adults. We have to go back to that relationship. It's, uh, it's called by anthropologists, it's called the child-adult continuum. We have to reestablish that continuum. There should never be a gap between a 15-year-old and a parent. There should never be a gap. That's, that's a, it's idiotic. That's a modern invention, a modern creation, the so-called generation gap. We have to reestablish the child-adult continuum, and we can do that in modern ways so that young people, in fact, are integrated, welcomed into adult society just as soon as they can show readiness in one or more areas. So uh, last night I gathered um, the three, our three children who are at home and a, and a neighbor's daughter and my wife, and we took the test that's in the back there, the abbreviated test, um, and probably spent a good hour kind of talking about the ideas. And one of the, the questions that keeps coming up in the chat now has been you know, concern about what, what can you actually do at school, um, and maybe even a little bit of a concern that um, uh, someone here felt maybe a little bit offended at the generalizations. Um, have you thought at all about what educators could do um, and do you have kind of an answer to, to them that would at least provide them with some hope that they can make a difference? Well, educators are very stuck. Uh, you know, one of the people who wrote a beautiful uh, endorsement for my book is John Taylor Gatto. John Taylor Gatto is probably the most award-winning teacher in American history. He was uh, twice or I think three times a New York City Teacher of the Year, twice New York State Teacher of the Year. I mean, an amazing, amazing teacher. Uh, and he, he wrote an incredible endorsement for my book because he's been saying what I've been saying uh, for decades. Uh, and he finally quit teaching after 25 or 30 years because he said he could no longer uh, he could no longer stand hurting young people. He could no longer stand hurting them because that's that's largely what happens in our school systems. And you know, I am a teacher. I mean, I I, I have nothing against schools or teachers, but the system is outmoded. The system is archaic. The system does terrible harm to to young people and terrible harm to our families. The main thing that the education system teaches is to hate learning. And that's not what we should be teaching young people. We should be teaching them to love learning. And education should be something that's spread out over our entire lives. It shouldn't be crammed in in the early years. The idea of cramming it in in the early years, that came from the Industrial Revolution uh, because, you know, 100 years ago, you could do it. And so that was the concept. We're going to cram in everything in the early years, and then, then for the rest of their lives, our young people can work in business and industry. Well, these days it doesn't work. And as I say, our education system is outmoded. It's archaic. It needs to be changed radically and dramatically. There's not much that a teacher working within the system can do, unfortunately. Well, so I'm sure that that will generate some controversy. It occurred to me that what the exercise I did with my family, you could actually do in a class, which is to bring in the material from the book and invite the students to actually go through it and maybe write essays or, or explore the topic in some depth. So as an individual teacher, and Carol, I don't know how you'd respond to that, but that might be an interesting exercise to try. Okay, so we have just a minute left. Uh, well, I, I think, uh, sure. I was going to say, I have seen experiments like that done in a few classrooms, but the system as a whole is really, it's a tough nut to crack. Good. So we've got just a couple minutes left. I, um, while you're preparing maybe a final question, if anyone wants to raise their hand, uh, I highlighted something in a Q&A that you had 
printed for the Case Against Adolescence, which was actually the early version of this book. And you said, I'm confident that the child-adult continuum will be restored to some extent over the next 10 to 20 years, in part because of the enormous power that modern technology has to accelerate social change. And I might add maybe the power it has to, to magnify uh, contributions regardless of age. Do you still feel that way? Well, I do, but I, but I also know right this moment in this culture, we're moving very rapidly in the wrong direction. So yes, there is hope. Uh, there's some amazing people out there in organizations like Education Evolving, which is in Minnesota. I've I, I definitely seen some good things happening. There's the National Youth Rights Association, which is doing great things. Uh, we just established something called the National Youth Rights Day. Uh, so yeah, I've seen some movement, but generally speaking, right this moment, because of the forces, uh, the huge forces that I've described, uh, we're, we're moving in the wrong direction. I know that we're at, at the hour. We have one hand raised, and I do know that it's from a college student. Are you willing to take one final question? Oh, I'm I'm free, you know, as long as you want me. Oh, sure. oh, that's way too generous. But we'll we'll let uh, uh, Gabrielle take the mic and what you do is you click on the large microphone button in the audio area, Gabrielle, to ask your question. Oh, and it looks like she put it in the chat. Could extracurricular education and activities take the kids like your son and give them the mentorship and structure to exceed the education system? Well, uh, first of all, anyone past puberty is not a kid and we've got to get our language straight. Uh, you know, no, no farmer would call a goat past puberty a kid. You know, their kid, a goat is a kid before puberty and after puberty it's no longer a kid and we've got to work on our language. And I would say, Gabrielle, that uh, there, there, you know, there's only so much, at least at the middle school or high school level, that the education system can do because, uh, again, there's so many constraints. So it's hard to really uh, develop fully the, the confidence of young people when they're stuck in a classroom with, with a bunch of their peers and they're being, uh, you know, influenced morning until night by you know, so-called teen culture. So there isn't that much that an educator can do. I mean, uh, you can try, but remember, in a high school, you know, you you really are locked in, literally and figuratively, and you can't even go urinate, uh, you know, without permission. And you're certainly not treated like a young adult, and uh, you know, your your confidence is is hardly being developed to any great extent. I mean, young people, 14, 15, 16, 17 years old, they're capable of working side by side, uh, you know, with rocket scientists and outdoing them uh, easily, you know, if given those uh, those opportunities. And we're we're not giving them those opportunities. We're trapping them in that classroom. So first, I need to apologize to Gabriel, who's obviously a male and not a female. Um, but uh, no, it's my, oh. that's my fault. And um, thank you, Gabriel, for being understanding. Um, I also want to give a shout out to Jackie Gerstein, who's in the audience, and to Jenny Luca from Australia, who's not, who have really spearheaded this Students 2.0 uh, network with the idea that students could come there, connect with adult uh, mentors, and find things to do outside of the traditional structure. So if, some, if Jackie maybe put the link in there to Students 2.0 dot com and encourage people to go there and, and see if that experiment works. The, tonight has been Dr. Epstein, uh, tomorrow is Jackie and then Anya on Wednesday. So hopefully we're, we're um, kind of doing a little mini series here on the whole idea of uh, youth capabilities. Um, any final questions, Dr. Epstein? Could I possibly mention two links? Yeah, can I mention two links possibly and maybe they can be We'll post somewhere. them as soon as you say them. Okay, the first one is teen20.com. That's just T-E-E-N-2-0.com. That has some information about the book. And then howadultareyou.com, howadultareyou.com, and that's where this test of adultness is. And actually, there is a new link and a new test, which is howinfantilizedareyou.com. And I'm also working on something called extendedchildhooddisorder.com. So, but the main two links are Team20.com and HowAdultAreYou.com. I see. I see. Uh, Steve has already put it up there. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. Thank you for a fascinating read. Uh, I'm 
I will say I'm drinking a Kool-Aid. I've really appreciated the depth that you went to. When this book was mentioned to me, it was actually mentioned by Michael Furtick at a conference. And, and Michael has himself uh, the credential of being a teenager who started a business and sold it, and now is one of the, the starters of taking IT global. Um, and he, he gave me the reference to the original book, The Case Against Adolescence. I ordered it on my Kindle, emailed you, you told me about Teen 2.0, and I ordered that on Amazon and got it very quickly. And I've really enjoyed kind of diving into this. And um, really appreciate your taking the time tonight, overcoming the technical struggles, and, um, and giving us some opportunity to hear you talk about this. So I think this is a good place to stop. I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, you know, would love to have you back at some point, but won't put you on the spot to answer that now. But just know that this has been uh, really enjoyable. And thank you so much. I'll be happy to come back anytime, Steve, and thank you so much. Uh, this is a fascinating topic for me, and uh, obviously I have a lot of passion here, and uh, happy to discuss it uh, anytime, anywhere. Happy to visit people and visit organizations and visit schools, and uh, thank you so much for an excellent interview today, an excellent discussion, and thank you everyone for wonderful questions. I wish I could have answered more of them. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Dr. Epstein's email address is in my blog post because it was on his website. So uh, just know that that's available to you. Uh, I don't think you're on Twitter, are you? Uh, no, I'm not. I'm, I mean, I'm still pressuring <laughs> you, but you know, there's only so many hours in the day. I, you know, but no, I'm not on Twitter, but I suppose it will happen eventually. Very funny. OK, thanks to Dr. Epstein. Thanks to Illuminate, my employer, for their sponsorship. Thanks to Seabloom and Associates for paying for the books. Uh, it sure helps with big books like this. And coming up uh, tomorrow, Randy Orwin on open source software and Jackie, our own Jackie Gerstein tomorrow on user-generated education. Is it user-generated or user-directed, Jackie? Either way, you get the idea. Hope you have a great night, everyone. Thanks. Dr. Epstein, thanks everybody for coming. I'll stick around for a few minutes and close us up. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. And Carol, thanks for, for pushing back a little. I think that was really helpful. And uh, certainly this is a cultural negotiation where it's a dialogue. Uh, and, and hopefully we've contributed to that discussion tonight. And you did. And we appreciate it. <laughs>